Babies, and welcome to Poker of the Years. I'm Uncle Daddy Joe Stapleton. Here's my work wife, James Hardigan. Happy Wimbledon Fortnite, Joe, which is about to begin. Oh, there's a there's a Wimbledon skin for Fortnite now. Really? Tennis oh, players. God, I've just realized each other. I didn't get the joke. Oh, that's terrible. Oh, shut up and move on. <laughs> Coming up on today's show, it's the first of our summer specials. Uh, we're officially in the off season right now. And we are both currently taking a vacation. God, I hope. I hope I'm on vacation. But before disappearing from your screens and MP3 players, we decided to pre-record a few extra episodes for your listening pleasure. And this first one is about policing the online poker tables. James, I'm already nervous. Am I getting pulled over? No, I will explain, Joseph. (laughs) Uh, The first thing to say is, look, this is serious subject matter. And I'd say that for us... It's rare, but not unheard of for us to tackle something a little bit more weighty or meaty. Um, Look, you and I know what's going on in the poker world, and we know there's been a lot of talk about RTAs and dream machines in recent months. And when we talk about any form of bots being used in online poker or any form of collusion or any form of cheating for that matter, there is understandably genuine concern from players about how prevalent these problems are and what steps are being taken to prevent them. Well, the good news is I had the chance to talk to Francis Lincoln, who is the head of game integrity at PokerStars. Wow. And we had a half hour conversation about keeping the online tables safe and fair. All right. Well, before we get to that, we're going to give you some of the regular show treatment. First of all, Sunday Millions, we're, we're taking a break from the podcast, but not the Sunday Million. Yeah. Now, there are a couple of weeks when Joe and I are legitimately on vacation, so Nick Walsh will be standing in. But every Monday night, you are going to get day two of the Sunday Million, which, in case you missed it, is now an eight max PKO every single week. Uh, we had a stream uh, the other week where we crowned a three-time Sunday Million winner. I think it was a a three-time up against a previous champ. So someone was either going to get the triple or the double, right? Yeah, it was going to be a good story either way. But, you know, we don't hear of three-time winners all that often. So that's pretty freaking cool. Yeah. Um, just one quick shout-out on Discord, by the way. Bounty Bob hasn't posted for a while. Uh, he says that himself. But Bob says, I'm finally up to date with the pods. Great shows as always. And very much looking forward to the summer specials. Bob? <laughs> You're listening to the first one now. Um, Here we go. I guess we can talk about some TV stuff. And because I made a bit of a mistake with the show I want to talk about right now, I don't want to say anything more about Obi-Wan Kenobi until it's finished. Because Barry Season 3, I probably harshly and unfairly condemned it two to three episodes in. And it then found its feet It hit the ground running by the middle of the season and was up there with the rest of the seasons by the end. Like, like I feel great. I felt the same way. Like I hadn't given up on the show. Obviously I just didn't really love the first couple episodes of season three. And I don't know if you saw my tweet, James, but at watching Barry season, uh, the episode eight, the, the season finale was the first time I ever broke into a sweat watching a TV show because it was so intense and so emotional. And then in the very next scene, I thought we were going to get a reprieve. It happened again. And then the scene right after that, I'm not going to say I sweat a third time, but it was one of the most emotional scenes back to back to back scenes. And Barry, I'm, I'm getting chills right now just thinking about it. I can't. 
Bill Hader is is up there in my opinion. Now, granted, like you're only as good as your next thing. Yeah. But so far, he is as good a filmmaker or as good a storyteller as anyone that has ever lived. I don't disagree. I don't disagree. Um, just a quick word on the World Series of Poker in Vegas. And suffice to say, we can't stay across everything that's happening there right now. But the one thing that's happened in recent days at the time we're recording this show is that there has been or we're coming to the end of a, a mini COVID outbreak, which I think is a useful reminder that we are not out of the woods yet. And therefore, caution does have to be applied when you're running a major live event. I will say it's good to see some players, including Phil Helmuth, acting responsibly and publicly declaring that they've tested positive and publicly declaring that they're staying away from the event. Yeah, I'm going to focus on the positive there and just say that some of the negatives are things that we haven't seen, right? It's easier to see. Uh, first of all, I'm not even making a positive pun here. I just realized that's possible. I mean, like, focus on the things, the good things, which is people doing the right thing and people testing out and saying that they're going to sit out. I haven't seen a ton of, I'm at a final table tomorrow and I'm positive. Um, I haven't seen a ton of that. And obviously, there's probably lots of not testing going on. And I don't mean that to be critical of people. I want to focus on the positive. It's good that many people are testing and are staying away when they figure out that they're ill. And all I'm saying about myself is I'm glad that I'm not in that position. Yeah, It's a terrible position to be in, and I'm glad that I've avoided it. Uh, and I don't disagree with you, Joe. It's actually very hard to focus on all the good things when it's unfortunately the negative stuff that tends to dominate what people are saying on social media, whether it is the controversy surrounding particular formats that they now run or the registration fees they apply or the presence of certain players who've become personas non grata in the poker world, which right. brings us on perfectly <laughs> to the subject of this week's show, which is policing poker. Um, in case you didn't know, PokerStars does have a dedicated game integrity team and no disrespect to Jimmy Fricky. I've always thought of these people as the real poker police, Joe. Yeah, th I mean, look, Jimmy Fricky was only my police. It wasn't policing all of poker stars. He was policing one person. And the good news is the game integrity team doesn't have to focus on me at all. That is true. Uh, so we're going to hear from Francis Lincoln, who heads up the game integrity department, talking about his remit about his team's day-to-day -day work. Uh, plus, we're going to go over all the things that people try to do to gain an unfair advantage at the online tables. Now, before we launch into this, I think it's important to give you a couple of caveats to avoid disappointment later. Francis does not talk about specific cases or incidents, and there is no naming and shaming of individuals. And I hope everyone can understand why we don't go down that road. The other thing is, despite my desperate attempts for more information, Francis does not and cannot go into detail about some of the methods that his team use to detect wrong, wrongdoing. It's frustrating, but I get it. And just, I guess, to give a slightly awkward real-world example, several decades ago, when thieves discovered that police had fingerprint technology, they started wearing gloves. When you tell people <laughs> about your methods, when you tell people about how you can catch them, they find ways to try and evade detection. Anyway, I hope you still find it interesting and enjoy this interview with the head of game integrity at PokerStars, Francis Lincoln. Uh, Francis, thank you for taking the time 
to be on the show today. There is a lot to cover, and I know that the hot topic for a lot of our audience is real-time assistance. But I wanted to start with an overview of your role and your team. When we say game integrity, what is it and who is it? Yeah, so Game Integrity is a team of about 50 people who are, who are in my remit, just over 50. Um, and we spend all day looking for uh, what we call Game Integrity violations. So the difference right. from Game Integrity violations with other things is Game Integrity is specifically players defrauding or cheating other players. So there's other areas of the company that look at credit card fraud or money laundering or stuff like that. Game Integrity specifically is players using the game of poker to unfairly get an edge. Um, so there are three main areas we look at. Uh, the first one is bots, which you've mentioned. Uh, RTA is, is a, falls under the bot remit. Right. And then also collusion, which I suspect most people will kind of understand what that is pretty instantly. And then multi-accounting, which is obviously people using more than one account, um, kind of specifically within the game integrity context to gain an advantage. We call it multi-accounting for anonymity, which is a little bit different to say if someone signs up 50 accounts to get free 50, 50 times, another team would deal with that. Right. Okay. Well, we'll do all those those things in turn. I guess in, in layman's terms, game integrity is kind of like the poker police in the sense that you're just trying to make sure people follow the rules. Yeah, that's that's exactly what we do. Poker stars police has been thrown around as an idea. Never <laughs> yeah. quite stuck. Um, but yeah, that's, that would be the way to think of it for sure. And and obviously a, a, a decent number of people working on this side of the business. I guess a key question would be why PokerStars takes it so seriously. I don't mean to sound obtuse. There are a lot of people who say, well, why does PokerStars care? What happens? Why do you care who wins? You make money regardless. Why invest money in having this team? Yeah, well, it's, it's actually a little bigger than I just said as well. In addition to the 50 people on my team, we've got a team of developers who I want to make sure I get a mention as well, who make sure we have the tools we need. And if we find some new data that we need, you know, put in a certain certain way in a tool, then they'll do that for us. Um, but the, the main reason to answer your question is just like trust is just the center of everything. Yeah. Um, and that comes in a few ways. Game integrity is just one of them. So the, the obvious three that I kind of normally think about are you've got game integrity, as I've just described it. You've obviously got that the RNG is fair, that the game is fair, that the shuffle, the deal are fair. And then also that your money is safe. Um, and obviously, again, other areas of the business look after those things. Um, but yeah, the, the feeling is just that without at least those three core things, then your your business is on shaky ground. So that's why we invest so heavily in it. Sure. I mean, how big a problem are we talking about? If we look at those three specific areas that you identified, bots, collusion, multi-accounting, how rife is this nefarious behavior? Let's put it under that umbrella. It kind of depends how you define it a little bit. So what I mean by that is, so if we take collusion, for example... We warn uh, several thousand players a year for collusion. Now, almost all of this is very, very low level. We catch it within a few hundred hands. It's normally people who are quite new to the game who probably do know the rules, if I'm honest, but they don't realize anyone's watching them. And in those cases, we would give them a warning. We compensate accordingly out of Pokestar's pocket to make sure anyone affected is uh, kind of made whole. Um, so that covers kind of a lot of violations by number. But the, the harm done is very, very low, especially if you've got the resources we have to find people very quickly. And then at the higher level, you know, stuff stuff does still go on. Um, but again, we, hopefully we, we kind of catch it quickly enough. We catch the vast majority of stuff ourselves before players report it to us, which is kind of one of the measures we use of whether or not we're doing a good job. Um, and yeah, in terms of, you know, the hundreds of thousands of uniques we have on our site every month or the... I'm not, I think we quite do a billion hands a month, but I don't think it's too far off it. You know, in, in the context of 
how many hands have fraudulent activity in that context, it's a fraction of a fraction of a fraction of a percent kind of thing. Right, right. And I guess you're giving people the benefit of the doubt, right? Just to go back to what you were talking about, to use your phrase, low level collusion. As you say, people probably know they shouldn't be, but you're kind of like saying, look, these are the rules and you get a slap on the wrist and any further violations and you're out. Exactly. Yeah. Like, I, I certainly don't want to have people concerned that we're soft on cheating, but we see people who are new to the site. They've never played more than, you know, $1 sit and goes, one cent, two cent. And we still, you know, police those games aggressively. Um, but we certainly feel that most of the people cheating at those stakes, once they've been told that this isn't allowed and that someone is watching them, um, that the the rates of reoffending are, are very, very low. And one of the reasons we, we can give people warnings is we're confident that if they reoffend, we'll catch them very quickly. And so yeah. we can see how many people reoffend, and we know that the number is, is very, very low for the types of people we do warn. So we're not worried that we're letting people off and then they're going back and doing it again. I want to talk about how you catch people or how you detect this stuff in just a moment. But on the subject of multi-accounting, is that a similar situation where a lot of people don't realize that what they're doing is wrong? That like... Gary Turnbuckle opens a, an account with one email address, forgets his password, and the next thing you know, Gary Turnbuckle 2 is now playing at the tables. Yeah, I mean, that, that is something we would, again, give warnings for. That's not, you know, it's not a particularly serious violation, but it's not allowed. It's one of the yeah. clearer things in the terms of service, which I'm sure everyone reads very carefully. You're only allowed one account. You're only allowed to play on one account. That's something that we think everyone knows. But yeah, that's more the, the person in that example is doing it for convenience rather than any nefarious reason. Sure. Um, so again, when I'm talking about the kind of the thousands of violations we deal with, the majority of them are that, um, which you know is probably separate from the kinds of violations people think about when they think about multi-accounting. It's it's very very uncommon. For example, at the moment, kind of ten or fifteen years ago, the big worry was that you had players in good players playing five accounts in one tournament. Like we don't we don't really see that anymore. Um, but there are still people who do try occasionally. And how do you detect that? I guess the question is, how much of this is technology-led and how much of this is human detective work? Um, it's a combination of both. Um, unfortunately, I can't tell you all the all the secrets, much as it would be a very interesting conversation. Um, the way it works broadly is no decisions are made by by AI. We use that to kind of obviously sift through the hundreds of thousands of players, the, the tens of millions of hands. Um, and we have a, an alerting system which flags various things for, for humans to look at. And then, yeah, human expertise almost always takes over. Um, and ultimately, that's what, you know, is the deciding factor in every case that the human, you know, a game integrity agent will, will look at a case and try and figure out what goes on. And then we use normally a peer review system. So depending on the stakes played and the seriousness, they will need to get another opinion from someone else. And that's how we make sure that we don't make mistakes because there's not much room for error in our game, especially when we're considering confiscating money and that kind of thing. Sure. And the, the people who, who work for you, the people who make up the game integrity team, what is their background? Are they former poker players themselves? Yeah, it's a mixture. Um, a lot of passionate poker people, for sure. Um, yeah, ex-professionals. Um, also, I think people are kind of surprised a little bit, but people who have a kind of more data analytics background are quite useful to us as well. And then occasionally we get the kind of the unicorn people that are good at poker and data analytics. They're the real, <laughs> right? They're the people you're really looking for that can, you know, understand both sides of it. Um, you basically need poker proficient nerds. That's what you basically need to staff your department. Yeah, if you're one of these guys and we're advertising, then we want to hear from you for sure. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah, when, when when we interview game integrity people, there's a few stages, but the first one is 
how many hands have you played online? What stakes have you played? We'll ask them a few kind of basic strategy questions, those kind of things. Like that's yeah. We do that before we then ask about how do you work in a team and, and those kind of things. Like that's definitely the number one requirement. Because I'm sure you've seen that whenever the subject of cheating in poker comes up or what needs to be done to stop people violating the rules, the community seems very keen that it is poker players who ultimately police it themselves, whether that's an independent committee, whatever. But I guess they will be pleased to know that the people investigating, the people making these decisions, the people making these rulings are themselves poker players. Exactly, yeah. I mean, that's what differentiates game integrity from everyone else to some degree, um, in that everyone has poker proficiency. And if hands of poker need looking at, then we're, we're the team that people come to. And again, you know, other, other teams have good areas of expertise that we occasionally need them for. But yeah. kind of poker players, certainly, we're, we're a bit more renowned for. Um there's also a perception in the wider poker community that any case that comes to your team is basically being referred to you by other players, that it's suspicions that something wrong's going on and they come to you. Um, how much is it? What, what is the balance of cases which you're picking up versus the ones that are being brought to you by players? Yeah, that's a common misconception that we've been trying to dispel for a while. Um, for the last few years, for, for a very long time, uh, we've had kind of above 95% proactive detection. So by that, I mean, for every 100 cases, 95 are ones we detect internally, five would be ones that players have sent to us. Um, so by volume, again, it's 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 us by a, a good margin. Um, the player reports do have value, like they occasionally, people spot things we miss. M- most commonly, people spot things before we spot it. So you have someone colluding at a ring game table and they're re-raising every single hand and you know we would find it in a day, but they can find it in five minutes. So some of it's that, but we do also have some good reports of stuff we miss, which helps us improve our detection. You know, we something we need to be careful about is to have some humility, right? You know, we're hopefully very good at what we do, but we don't catch everything all the time or everything is as quick as we could. So when we get player reports, you know, often they are helpful in us thinking, right, why didn't we catch this? How can we catch it quicker next time before a player can report it to us? So again, that's something we're always trying to think about. I appreciate you can't give away all the secrets. I appreciate you can't tell us all of the methods and technology employed. How easy is it to detect, and let's take them in turn, bots, for example. And I I know that you say that real-time assistance falls under the umbrella of bots, but I think most people would consider a bot to be a fake player at the table who's making kind of, you know, automated moves as it were and is is not a real person and shouldn't be in the game and I think some people find it quite funny that there's still a thing in 2022 because it was all the talk back in like 2002 when online poker started so there's two types of bots as we kind of define them internally there's what we call a fab which is a fully automated bot so that's one that you're probably thinking of the first thing that comes into your head where you download a piece of software yeah. you let it run um, and it just kind of minds its own business while you go have dinner or watch the football or whatever and the other one is what we call a, a PTBB, which stands for push this button bot. So that's when a human is controlling the account um, and something tells them what to do. Um, right. And they both have their own challenges. Well, fundamentally, they're still kind of powered by an AI brain. They're both very much not allowed, uh, both strictly prohibited. Um, and yeah, RTA would fall under the, the PTBB. So sorry, in case anyone not aware, as you mentioned earlier, RTA is real-time assistance. So as I've hopefully kind of described, a PTBB is telling you what button to push. That's exactly what RTA is. This was a term that we had before RTA was kind of particularly prominent. Yeah, well, let's get into the weeds then. Um, it's hilarious. I mean, I used to work in in 
London radio and an RTA to me was a road traffic accident as reported by the Metropolitan Police. So I have to get my head around this abbreviation now meaning something else. It is the hot topic at the moment. And obviously there have been issues uh, with the use of this software and players who've been exposed using real-time assistance. First of all, what is the difference between RTAs and solvers and sims? Because I guess it's the difference between using stuff while you're playing and using stuff when you're not playing? Exactly. So when you're playing on PokerStars, you're not allowed to run any sims, run any solves, or receive any coaching. And that implies for the hands you're playing or not. So you can't be playing a tournament and running sims on a cash game. We kind of have a clear clear-cut line. When you're playing on PokerStars, you're not allowed to be using any other software that, that might aid you. But how do you stop that? How do you detect that? And how do you prevent it? Yeah, so, I mean, we've been catching bots for, for 20 years. I mean, even RTA uh, leaves some of the same kind of fingerprints that you'd expect for the, the fully automated bots we've been catching for a long time. But uh, a good few years ago, we kind of obviously saw that this was coming. Uh, and we developed our own machine learning platform. I'm, I'm kind of conscious not to call it a solver because it, it works slightly differently. But basically, this lets us assess the skill level of players um, right. and see how accurate their players. And there's a few other things we kind of terms I don't want to use because they'll give away how we think about it. But basically we're kind of processing the vast majority of hands on the site. And that allows us to get a kind of understanding of how well people are playing in certain situations and find the anomalies that, you know, using this yeah. kind of software will, will, will give you. But I can imagine Francis that some of those anomalies are obvious and some of them are a lot tougher. Like if I suddenly started playing 100, 200 and all of a sudden, I'm a winning player. You're going to know something's wrong. But if you've got someone who is playing at the highest stakes, who plays a very GTO approach to the game, how are you able to determine whether that is a human decision or a machine-assisted decision? Poker is a very complicated game. Is is sort of, the, in some ways, the best answer I can give to that without giving too much away. Um, obviously, some people might use RTA occasionally. That's going to be more difficult to detect. And again, this is something that we're always looking to improve on. But broadly speaking, the kind of accuracy rates we see from even the best players, um, they give us enough wiggle room to kind of find what we're looking for. And then the other thing we can do is we have to do recorded sessions with players. So that means we ask them to record themselves kind of 90 minutes on a video camera where they send us the recording and we can see what they were doing. And this gives us kind of 90 minutes where they've played in a controlled environment. And this normally gives us kind of a pretty good indication of, you know, what people's capabilities are. And then again, we can compare that with what we've seen historically. And I have been kind of quite surprised myself because 90 minutes doesn't sound like a particularly long time, but we have had quite a lot of success with this method in terms of separating what we think is, you know, natural from what is unnatural. Yeah, I mean, because... Even after all these years and all this time, I behave differently when there's a camera pointed at me to how I do normally. And I would have thought that that would put the player in a high-pressure situation, knowing they're being watched. And you're still not going to necessarily see them play their A game, as it were, their real game. Yeah, that's something we have to consider, certainly. Again, I don't want to say too much about how we do that. But sure. Yeah, when there's, you know, I mean, I'm talking to you right now. I'm not a not used to being interviewed, so I'm kind of speaking a bit differently. So if you're comparing my voice to my natural voice, it might be a bit yeah, different. Yeah. So yeah, we do we do consider those things when we're making assessments. In terms of what you're able to see going on on someone's computer, are for example, are you able 
to monitor a player's entire desktop? Because there has to be a balance between preventing cheating and invasion of privacy, right? Yeah, so uh, there's a few things to mention there. So the first one is uh, Flutter, who was a parent company of PokerStars, billion-dollar organization. Data protection is very, very, very important. Um, and that's something that we, we take very, very seriously. So if you look in the terms of service, you can see that we can see what software is running concurrently with the PokerStars software. So if you've got Google Chrome open or Internet Explorer open, we can see that that's running. We can't see anything within that. So we don't know if you've just got Google open or whatever you're browsing, like absolutely can't see any of that. We can just see what other programs are running at the same time. In terms of like what's physically on your desktop or you know your bank details or whatever you're looking at, no, we can't see that. Um, I've seen some people claim on 2 plus 2 that everyone can do this. Certainly we can't. Okay. I guess it does beg the question where one draws the line between what is considered to be real-time assistance and what is tracking software, right? Because some people would say that a HUD gives players an unfair advantage. Has there ever been any talk about just saying no third-party software of any kind? Yeah, so we do allow some limited third-party software. So I'll come back to HUD in a minute, but... um. Some others we allow are like you can have things that organize your tables. So if you're playing on multiple sites or you've just got eight tables, um, it'll automatically stack or tile them in, in places you've, you've predefined. Um, so stuff like that that just kind of aids your play and makes your life a bit easier is acceptable. Um, for HUD specifically, one of the things that kind of is remains strong PokerStars is you get your hand histories instantly. So as soon as you play a hand, the hand will appear in some predefined folder in your computer if you've set it up as such. Um, and it'll tell you, you know, all the actions, everything that's happened in the hand, the receipt of the hand, effectively. Um, and all a HUD is doing is kind of compiling that information as you go in a way that you could, in theory, do with a pen and paper. Um, so for that reason, we kind of feel they're allowed. Um, and we think there's a pretty big difference between that and RTA, which is obviously telling you what to do, um, telling you which button to push. This is just kind of giving you information you would be able to get otherwise. Obviously, right. it's complicated to get that information and a, a HUD makes it easier for you. But it's information that you have access to about your own hand histories. Yeah. It's the difference between just giving you data to make an informed decision versus actually guiding your play, I guess. And and sticking with that subject of RTAs, again, going back to one of my earlier questions, how widespread a problem is this? This, as I said, is the thing that everyone in poker is talking about right now. How rife a problem do you think this is? Um. That's a, a difficult one to answer. Uh, definitely, it's one of those things where you don't you, you don't know what you don't know. Um, what I can say is that we occasionally realize something that we we didn't know. We we find a case, um, and there was some data point that we you know realize sort of gives us good insight into uh, finding stuff we've missed before. Yeah. And in almost every case, when we do that, we can then be like, all right, we found this new data point, and we can look backwards and see if that applied to, to previous cases. Um, or if there's anyone else that has that kind of suspicious data point. Um, and in almost every case, the answer is no. Um, so what I mean by that is whenever we have a kind of eureka moment, like, oh, this is what we missed in this case. This is how we could have gotten quicker. And then we go and check who else had that data point um, that we haven't caught yet. The answer almost always is no one. Um, so that gives us some kind of optimism that, you know, we are fairly effective. Um, but it is it is a difficult one for sure. I mean, it is one where sort of invest, still investing in the most heavily to make sure we've got the the most cutting edge detection. And it's clear from what you're telling me that you obviously have detected people doing this. You have caught people. 
you've chosen not to publicize names. You've chosen not to publicize the numbers of people who've been banned. I guess I understand why you're doing that, but also that's what the poker world's crying out for, right? They want to see action being taken. They want to see a, 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 a global list of people who've been cheating. Yeah, so that is something we have, we have thought a bit about. Uh, and there's a few points that mean that it's not going to happen, basically. So the first one is that my job is to make PokerStars as safe as possible. That's what me and yeah. my team are worried about, um, what other operators are doing. Uh, you know, they, they might be using different standards. We generally don't think their detection is as good. Um, some of our rules differ slightly. So trying to align everyone around one kind of common set of rules that people are then barred by is practically impossible, I would say. Um, and certainly the standard which other operators bar people is not one we would necessarily want to want to trust or follow. Um, and then the second part of that is we need kind of like a legal basis to, we would need a legal basis to share that information with other operators. Um, and there, there isn't one. Um, the one thing I've heard people say is that, well, you can write whatever you want into your terms of service and then you can just do that. And that's not really true. The terms of service are kind of there to protect both PokerStars and they're also there to protect the player. I mentioned earlier, we're a very big organization. Data protection is very important. And if you were to write something into your terms of service that said, in the future, at our, at our discretion, we may share your information with other unknown third parties, it's it's the non-start, basically. Um, so... Yeah, for a few reasons. Although I can kind of understand uh, why the you know the, the desire is there, it's a combination of impractical and um, not legal. I guess is, is where we're at at the moment. Yeah, yeah. And of course, the, the focus and the stories that kind of populate social media and the poker community talk about tend to be at the highest stakes. Is that where you focus most of your efforts, or are you monitoring all games? at all stakes? Yeah, so we, we do monitor all games and stakes. Kind of almost the way I'd... I'm not sure what the analogy is. There must be a good one. But basically, the, the high-stakes stuff is obviously where we have the most sophisticated cheaters, people who are working the hardest to avoid our detection, who are conscious that we're looking out for them. And so we develop tools to find those guys. And then once we've found it and developed the tool, we can normally apply that to everybody. So in theory, like I mentioned, we... Uh, you know, track the accuracy of play and, you know, basically can rank how good we think people are. And we do see situations where suddenly the best player in the world is playing one cent, two cent, um, you know, because we've developed that tool kind of for higher stakes to some degree. But then once we've developed it, because of the way data works, we can use yeah. that across all our games and stakes. Um, and yes, if you're suddenly the best in the world playing one cent, two cent, then you're probably a bot. So um, <laughs> the people at low stakes do get kind of the same the same level of protection as everyone else. Um we obviously do spend a little bit more time thinking about the high stakes in terms of that's where yeah that's where players are going to be trying yeah. harder to sort of evade what we already have. Um, but yeah, once we've figured out how to catch them, it's normally pretty easy to apply that to the whole site. Do you worry that there will come a point when machine learning, artificial intelligence, is so good that you can't detect it? Whether that be a bot actually playing on the site or a real-time assistance program that is so fast, so quick that players can disguise it? So when people ask me this question, which I've been asked before, the first kind of thing that comes into my mind is the guy who's the senior manager for the bots team, when he became a bot agent, I don't know, eight or nine years ago, yeah, people were already saying to him like, oh, we'll all be done by this time next year. You know, the, <laughs> the game's up. Um, and, and we are still here. Um, I think as I kind of touched on before, 
there's enough complications with the game of poker that yeah. differentiating human from non-human is for the, for the foreseeable future at least is, is always going to be doable you know the accuracy we see from the best players is still there's still a lot of room for improvement which leaves us the ability to kind of differentiate between the two um and all the things you've just kind of kind of touched on it's very hard to evade our eye for long enough that yeah. when we put you in the controlled environment i talked about of the recorded session um it's it's there's enough basically that makes it very very challenging for players to both go unnoticed and then not get caught once we notice them i think would be the the best way i could put it yeah and obviously you referred already to the technology that you're using which i guess pops up those red flags and i'm assuming that that's something that is always being developed right that's always evolving yeah so we've got uh like i said a team of developers we've got a, a roadmap with you know a, a long wish list um but we do get through the wish list pretty quickly and even when you think about when i think about where we are now versus say i don't know i can't remember how long our machine learning platform has been around but quite a yeah. while but before that you know we were still fairly effective um but then yes the, the brains got better and it got easier for good bots to be used um but our detection you know increases as they get better it is a bit of an arms race effectively um of course. again when we're a a billion dollar company with all the kind of backing and smart people we have, then we have, we're in a good place, I think. Yeah. And without mentioning any names, do you keep an eye on what other poker platforms are doing? And do you feel confident that the work your team is doing makes PokerStars one of, if not the safest places to play? Yeah. The, the kind of the feedback we get from the high stakes community is certainly that everyone knows PokerStars is the safest. And we do have situations where we bar players after extensive investigations, and then maybe you, you do see them playing elsewhere, um, which again, I can understand why the poker community might not be too happy about that, but I've spoken about the reasons that that, that can't, be, uh, can't be any other way. Um, we certainly do pay attention. You know, I'm on, I do follow poker Twitter every day to see uh, what the latest drama is. And as I said, we don't base any decisions off of what other sites do. Often people assume other sites have taken action when they might not have. I know from working in PokerStars that sometimes people assume we've taken action when we maybe haven't, or they've certainly got, you know, they, they misunderstand what did happen. But certainly if we see reports from other sites or people being accused on other sites, we will try and locate the account and, you know, conduct a, a detailed review. Certainly, we, we do certainly take notice, yeah. Um, when you conduct a review, I mean, I don't know if there is such a thing as a typical case. I mean, how much time would you say is spent on a kind of average case? Uh, that is a difficult one to answer. Yeah. Um, it does It does vary a lot. I mean, some of the, the more detailed investigations can take weeks. Um, normally, if we get into months, then we're doing something a little bit wrong. Um, but again, often you, for the, for the more difficult cases, the longer ones, you know, that's when you maybe ask your data team or your developers to build you something that checks something you hadn't thought of before that you want to look at before you you release the account. Um, I mean, a simple review can take anywhere from 30 minutes to an hour. It kind of depends whether any gameplay needs to be manually reviewed. So for collusion, manual review of gameplay is, is often what happens. We do have a few tools that find suspicious hands for us quickly. But if two players have got like 300 hands together, an agent will kind of physically review that. That's how that's done yeah. for the most part. Um, Whereas if you're doing a bot case, for example, there's not really any manual review of hands. It's all about the big data, how the player interacts with the client, um, how good their play is over time, those kind of things. Um, 
and yeah, hours if need be, and in some cases days. And that's the advantage of having the big team we do. It's that we've just got the resources that if something complicated comes up, three people can spend a week on something and everyone else just kind of cracks on with the the more ABC stuff. And that's the reason we kind of have the resilience to sort of roll with the punches as they come. Well, it's been a really interesting insight to the work of your team, Francis. Uh, thanks for taking the time to talk to us today. Cool. Pleasure being here. Thank you. All right. Well, that was pretty cool. Uh, you, you missed a few joke opportunities <laughs> here and there, but uh, I can understand why uh, maybe it wasn't the right time. Next time, Joe, we'll unleash you on a member <laughs> of Pokestars It's going to be the management. shortest interview ever. <laughs> and here's Joe's interview with Game Integrity for all 45 seconds we could keep. Okay. couple of quick postscripts. Uh, now, Francis did say that some transgressions are more serious than others, but for the avoidance of doubt, rules are rules. And it's really important to highlight to everyone listening that if you violate the terms of service, for example, if you do create a second account because you can't remember the login details of the first one, this is not allowed. And you could have your funds confiscated and you won't have a leg to stand on. The second thing is, I tried my best to cover everything, but I'm sure, in fact, listening back to it just now, I know there were a few questions. There were a few follow-ups that I didn't ask. But guys, this is your opportunity. Let us know on Discord what questions you would like asked, what areas you would like covered. If you submit your questions for Francis in the podcast suggestions channel on the Pokestars Discord server, link in the description, we're more than happy to get him back on the show after the summer break and revisit the subject. And Francis has already said he'd be more than happy to do that. And that works for me because it's a guess that I don't have to scrape up. James can handle that one, which is good. <laughs> yes. Less work for me. Coming up next time, it's the second of our summer specials. And it's a poker movie Monday on a Wednesday, recorded on a Thursday, released who TF knows when. I think it's uh, going to be probably middle of July. Um, and talking of members of PokerStars Senior Management, this was a suggestion by PokerStars Strag, the man with the golden arm, a poker-themed film that none of us have seen before, right? Not really even not seen before or barely even heard of, to be perfectly honest, I think until Strag started suggesting it. So uh, I'm going in totally dark on this one. Uh, it's from... 1955. Yes, it's an old movie. It's in black and white. It's starring Frank Sinatra, Kim Novak, and it's directed by the original Mr. Freeze. Long before I knew Otto Preminger was a filmmaker, he was Mr. Freeze in the 1960s TV show with uh, Adam West and Burt Ward. I knew I knew that name from somewhere. Really bizarre. Okay, so you can get it on Amazon Prime in the UK. Yes, you can. In the US, <laughs> it's available for free on Tubi. <laughs> <laughs> which is like so ridiculous that I had to get another streaming service to to watch The Man with the Golden Arm, but it is free. It's got actually kind of cool. It's got lots and lots of old TV shows and movies on it. There are commercials, but whatever. Uh, Tubi, <laughs> I'm having a little fun with Tubi. And uh, my good friend Nick Pine is an actor. Uh, you might know him from AP Bio. He was in the movie Office Christmas Party. And I figured if we're going to do a movie and uh, Frank Sinatra is going to be chewing up the scenery more than likely, let's have an actor on the show and see what they think of this movie with us. He's also a huge, huge poker fan. So I've been wanting to have Nick on the show for a while, cool. which I guess uh, Nick's a super fan. And we are going to have a man with a golden arm super fan who will be competing for three 
count them, three Sunday Million tickets. And just before we go, uh, a quick reminder that there is a link to our Discord server in the podcast description. There is a dedicated channel for superfan applications. And post-Barcelona, once we get into the autumn months, we're going to need superfans. So start applying. Remember, you get to pick the specialist subject. All right, my babies, that is all the time we have got for the first of our two summer specials. Until next time, for James Hardigan and the entire Game Integrity Department, I am Joe Stapleton. Smell you later. Smell you later.